What's going on, everyone? It's Friday, April 22nd, and you're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. I'm Zachary Crockett, and I'm here with Rob Litterst. What's up, Zach? And Mark Dent. How's it going? So there's been a whole lot going on in the entertainment world these past few weeks, specifically with streaming services. Netflix saw its stock decline by a ridiculous 35% after its latest report showed a struggle to grow its user base. CNN Plus is shutting down just weeks after it launched, and AT&T's huge sell-off of Warner Media after just a few short years of ownership has raised some eyebrows. We're going to break all that down, and we're going to talk about what these shifts mean for the future of streaming. But first, let's do a quick rundown of the news. Elon Musk said yesterday that he's lined up about $46.5 billion in financing for his bid to buy Twitter. Last week, he offered to buy the company for $54.20 per share, and Twitter's board quickly put defensive measures into place to try to make a takeover more difficult. little context here, back in 2018, Musk claimed that he had secured financing to take Tesla private at $420 a share, and the SEC basically said that he was full of shit, and the fallout from that is still going through the courts right now. So we'll see what happens this time around. Coinbase opened a beta version of its NFT marketplace for select users, Its main draw is that it's social-based. It's kind of like Instagram for NFTs. Users can like and leave comments on their favorite apes and punks and whatnot. The new feature already has a waitlist of 1.5 million people. And it's worth noting that this launch comes in the midst of declining NFT sales. Trading volume and the number of traders on major platforms like OpenSea are down by as much as 67% since last month alone. Nestle, the world's biggest food and drink company, has raised its prices by 8.5% in the U.S. this year. So if you're in the market for some Toll House cookies, expect to pay about 50 cents more for them. And this isn't just a Nestle problem. Global food prices hit their highest level on record earlier this year thanks to pandemic problems, weather troubles, and Russia's invasion. And lastly, the Obamas announced that they're leaving Spotify and seeking a new podcast deal elsewhere that will meet their needs of limited episodes with wide distribution. Bloomberg has reported that they're eyeballing a negotiation with Amazon's Audible and iHeartMedia, but nothing's set in stone there yet, and we'll keep you posted. All right, let's get into it. So we're going to catch you up on three big stories in the streaming space, and then we're going to take a step back and tell you how it all intersects and why it matters. So I want to start with Netflix here. (laughs) Rob, things are not looking too chill right now. What's going on there? Not chill at all, Zach. So shares of Netflix tanked by 35% on Wednesday after the company reported that it lost 200,000 subscribers in Q1 of 2022. Yikes. Yeah. For reference, the goal was to gain two and a half million subscribers. So when you talk about a 35% drop, that equates to $50 billion in value, which obviously has a really big impact on how Netflix can run its business going forward. And they've already announced that they plan to cut back on spending. For reference, Netflix spent $11 billion on content in 2020 and plan to ramp it up to $17 billion this year. Some analysts thought they might spend as much as $50 billion in the near future. So... A pretty big deal here. I think Ben Thompson has argued for a while that kind of the crux of Netflix's model is spending on content. So if they can't spend Mm -hmm. on content, then it kind of throws a little bit of a wrench in their flywheel, if you will. Sure. So how did Netflix get to this point? Why the dip? So a big reason for this dip is actually due to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers. 
they actually lost 700,000 subscribers by pulling out of Russia. So mm. that obviously played a big role. Obviously, you take Russia out of the equation. They still only gained 500,000 subscribers, which is way off their goal of 2.5 million. But sure. when you look at Netflix's total subscriber base, which I believe is up above 200 million at this point, losing 200,000 subscribers in the grand scheme of things isn't necessarily a big deal. I think the bigger thing with this news is the optics that... Netflix might be hitting saturation. And sure. it's the first time that they've lost subscribers, I think, in over a decade. So it brings up a few thoughts for me. One thing that I think people have been talking about for a really long time is just these kind of general purpose streamers have an increasingly difficult value proposition. So companies like Netflix, like HBO, like Peacock, like Amazon Prime Video, they don't really have a specific niche, right? They kind of play into all different types of genres of content they have movies, they have TV shows across a wide spectrum of genres and types of content. And when you don't have a specific niche, that just means that you have to have really good content. So there's a ton of pressure on all of these streaming services hmm. to either acquire really good content, like what Netflix did with Squid Game, or develop really great content and kind of find the right creators. And I think the only service that has proven over a reliable time frame that they know how to do this and they kind of have the institutional knowledge of how to do this is HBO. They've been doing this <laughs> since early 2000. They consistently churn out hits. They have a reputation for churning out hits. But then on the other side of this, you have kind of like niche streamers like Crunchyroll for anime and Shudder for horror. And these are like very kind of like genre specific streaming platforms that don't have as much upside as things like Netflix, obviously, but they're probably going to have a, a far lower risk of churn because their subscribers actually know what they're signing up for. But with these general purpose streamers, it's increasingly looking to me like the answer is going to be bundling, which is just super ironic because the original bundle is cable, which is what streaming was driving everybody away from. And I think, Zach, you shared something in Slack. It was like a tweet. It was like, it's going to be really funny when people find out that the best <laughs> business models for content are theaters for movies and cable for television. Right. And I could totally see that happening. Right. Yeah, we're just reverting back to like 60 years ago, basically. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. All right. Well, let's move on. That kind of brings us into our next big streaming foible here, which is CNN took a really big gamble on this new service and they just struck out. So three weeks ago, CNN, one of the big three cable news giants, they launched this new subscription streaming service called CNN Plus. And they dumped $3 million into it. They billed it as one of the most important launches since the network started 40 years ago. And they had plans to infuse another $700 million of cash into it. So it launched on March 28th for six bucks a month. And uh, really, since day one, it was just an absolute disaster. I think it only got around 10,000 paid subscribers. That's compared to its audience of 750,000 for its daily cable shows. It was widely mocked, kind of like the ill-fated Quibi back in 2020, if anyone remembers that. So now Warner Brothers Discovery, the parent company of CNN, is shutting down the whole thing. And the problem here is a little simpler than what's happening at Netflix, it seems like customers just don't want what they're offering. Uh, the value isn't quite there, and the lackluster demand shows that. But Mark, I'm going to go to you here because this really brings us into our third and final streaming screw-up, if you want to call it that, which is AT&T's dumping of Warner Media. This kind of ties in with the whole CNN Plus news, right? Yeah, like you were saying that it's Warner Brothers Discovery 
that is making the decision to pull the plug on CNN Plus. But it wasn't Warner Brothers Discovery that decided it wanted to spend $300 million on CNN Plus. Hmm. It was Warner Media, which is what the company was known as about a month ago. And Warner Media, of course, was owned by AT&T. And I feel like that's sort of like a, a business entertainment story. Just because of so much that happens in this ecosystem, I think people just forgot that like AT&T was in the entertainment industry for about three years. In 2018, AT&T bought Warner Media from Time Warner, hmm. and then they had it for about three years. And last year, they spun it off in a sale to Discovery, and then that sale kind of became final about two weeks ago. And so that's why we have hmm. this new company. And Mark, you wrote a pretty incredible investigative story for Texas Monthly about AT&T's history. And you might argue that this is yet another questionable move by AT&T. So just stepping back a bit and giving us the bigger picture, why was this decision questionable to begin with? Yeah, so AT&T, about five years ago, kind of looked at itself in the mirror and just saw a phone company. And a lot of their competitors were gaining on them, Verizon, T-Mobile, which obviously merged with Sprint to become very powerful. And they were like, what are we going to do? And their CEO, Randall Stevenson, the CEO at the time, decided to go into content. They saw themselves as like this internet and phone company, which in sort of like industry parlance means that they're a pipes company. And they're like, what flows through our pipes? Well, it's content. Uh, It's like the stuff that you watch on Netflix, movies, TV shows, et cetera. And they were just like, well, why don't we just do that? And so they paid $104 billion for Warner Media. And and of course, that includes products like CNN, as well as Mm -hmm. HBO, uh, the Warner Brothers Movie Studio, things like that. And the gist of it, at least as they explained it to me when I interviewed a lot of their executives, was that they thought it would make them stickier if someone had HBO Max as part of their phone plan, then they wouldn't want to give up their phone plan. Hmm. If someone had a phone plan as part of their HBO Max subscription, they wouldn't want to give that up either. And it it doesn't sound like that bad of an idea on paper, but then you have to keep in mind that Verizon made a deal with Disney and ESPN to just have kind of a similar bundling. Mm -hmm. Uh, T-Mobile did the same thing with Netflix. And so it was just kind of like, well, AT&T, why don't you just do that instead of spending $100 billion? So it just led to this incredible culture class between the very corporate AT&T and Hollywood. One executive told me that John Stanky, who was the CEO of Warner Media for a while, and then became the CEO of AT&T, knew as much about entertainment as somebody who goes to like a basketball game and asks, how many points do you get for a basket? <laughs> and, and that's really what it felt like to them. And wow. they made a lot of questionable decisions that bothered some people in the entertainment industry, like, for instance, putting movies out on HBO Max the same day they came out in theaters last year. And, you know, they did have a couple of decent results. Like HBO Max does have 73 million subscribers now if you combine it with the HBO viewing audience, which is up from 40 million at the end of 2020. But it still did not lead to a good stock position for AT&T or to really any progress. They, they just kind of saw streaming as this thing, as Rob was suggesting earlier, that they just had to keep feeding. They had to keep mm. putting money into it and resources into it without really getting that much out of it. Yeah. And can we just pause for a second and acknowledge that John Stanky is the greatest name in corporate America? <laughs> Ever. I mean, that, yeah. is, that is just a legendary name. And yeah, <laughs> the, the amount of jargon that comes out of him is is got to be record level also. <laughs> All right, so AT&T got swept up in this kind of streaming gold rush, if you will, and it obviously didn't really pan out well for them. No, it didn't. And, and as, as Rob was also mentioning earlier, there were a lot of other entrants. Like when AT&T first kind of started buying Time Warner, which was in 2016, and then it took a couple years before the sale was complete. 
there really wasn't all that much competition. There was Hulu and Netflix mm-hmm. at that point. But obviously now you have Paramount Plus, Disney, Peacock, and then to a lesser extent, Apple and Amazon, which are really the most interesting, I think, of these streaming companies because they have the most money. They have mm-hmm. more money than Disney. They have more than NBC. They are so powerful And they have really actually not spent nearly as much on content as these other companies. And you wonder if they're kind of like the sleeping giants who might be the only ones who can really crack this. Hmm. So pulling together these kind of three disparate failures, you know, you have Netflix failing to hit its subscriber goal. You have CNN Plus just totally falling flat on its face. And you have AT&T's big bet not really panning out. I guess it poses the question, is streaming a viable business model moving forward for media companies? Rob, you you mentioned that tweet earlier about someone suggesting that, hey, maybe movies and ad-supported television are the business model, but it actually has a lot of truth behind it. And these companies just have to become really big to be good at streaming. And every company wants to become big, right? Like everybody wants to be like Amazon, but it's really hard to do and really expensive and requires a lot of buy-in from investors. Mm -hmm. And when investors start to get frightened as they are with Netflix, then all of a sudden you don't have nearly as much power and you're not able to invest as much as you want to. Back in the old days, you had people who were more specialized. You had companies that focused on making things, and then you had companies Hmm. that were more focused on, like, distribution. And even though, like, us as consumers would sometimes say, like, oh, my God, my cable bill is so high, or or, why is it $12 to go see something at the movies? Those people, (laughs) they they always warned us, like, well, one day you're going to regret saying that when everything's unbundled. And, Hmm. And sure enough, even now for us consumers, it's costing us a lot of money. Everyone has subscription fatigue and everything else. And and so like this sort of older ecosystem, I think had great benefits for it, hmm. for companies and for your average consumer. But it's again, it's like these companies all think they can win. They think they can be the big one, the exception. And it's hmm. caused this sort of great streaming war that we're in right now and without anybody really winning uh, at hmm. this point. Yeah, I totally agree, Mark. I think like another part of it is the public company aspect of it. Like I just feel like there's so yeah. much pressure on every title that Netflix releases to perform. And anytime something doesn't perform, it's like, oh, Netflix screwed up again. There's another like crappy series or movie that didn't do any numbers for them. Content, if that's what we want to call it, it's fundamentally an artistic industry, right? So obviously there are producers, there are business people that are involved, but the people that are writing scripts, that are directing, that are acting, those folks are all creatives, right? And creatives, I don't think necessarily do well when they're under the pressure of expectations of generating a profit. What I'm trying to get at is I think there's something to be gained by being a private company or at least kind of hiding a lot of the results of what's actually going on with the public. And I think Netflix tries to be pretty secretive about their numbers, but very secretive <laughs> I th- I, until recently, I think like they started sharing like the 10 most popular things on Netflix and stuff like that. But yeah, historically they've been super secretive. And I think that's for a really good reason. Cause you see what happened here. They lost $50 billion in value in a day. Yeah. Rob, are you telling me that you don't want to watch Paul Blart Mall Cop 2? <laughs> Come on. Is it a prerequisite to watch Paul Blart Mall Cop 1? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it always shocks me how much 
R&D goes into some of the content that is on the Netflix platform. It's crazy. The other thing I was going to say is like the time might be right for Netflix to go into an ad supported tier. I think that would be a massive revenue generator for them if they had like a 995 tier that had some ads or whatever. I guess that could cannibalize some revenue from their current subscribers. But the other thing is if they got rid of password sharing, I mean, we've looked at that in the newsletter before of like what that opportunity would be. I think it's like 1.5 billion a year or something. Don't quote me. I think it's like somewhere around that. Mm -hmm. Netflix estimates 100 million users share passwords, right? Oh, yeah. And I, dude, I would take the over. Like, I, I know like five people in my family that share Netflix passwords. Mm-hmm. So like, extrapolate yeah. that out. I can't even imagine. But the last time I watched Netflix, I think, was for like the Queen's Gambit. Like, when is the last time that you guys tuned in? I am a Netflix subscriber and I've, I've been pondering cutting my subscription. The only reason why I keep it is because my dad also uses it and I'd feel bad. <laughs> but I, I watched Dawson's Creek. That's what I've been watching on Netflix. You know, the teen show from the late 90s and early 2000s, which is going to be off of Netflix starting April 30th. So the mm. countdown is on for me as a subscriber. <laughs> I will say I, I do think that some of the reality shows are good, but in terms of like their scripted television, it has definitely faltered, even though they're spending way more money. Well, it's so funny that you say that about Dawson's Creek, Mark, because when they lost The Office, like I was shocked that they maintained subscriber growth after losing The Office because I thought so many subscribers were going to churn. And I'm sure a bunch did. But like if you looked at the numbers, like every time I would look at Netflix numbers, it was like 5% of everything being viewed on Netflix was The Office, I think, or something like that. That's why it's just all about IP. It's like who can get the Seinfelds, the offices, Mm -hmm. the friends, like all that sort of stuff, Dawson's Creek, all the good stuff and, and aggregate that. They're going to be fine. One more thing I wanted to like mention, just when looking at this whole streaming landscape and and whether this is a viable business model, is just Hollywood's relationship with disruption and with Silicon Valley. I think that part of it is, yes, about this is an artistic pursuit and creators are doing something completely different than like certainly what people at AT&T are doing and even what most people who actually founded Netflix are doing. They're definitely not speaking the same language. But more than that, there is this sort of like ecosystem that I learned about when I was working on my um, big story last year for Texas Monthly when I when I started talking to a lot of Hollywood insiders. And there's just like this very like almost like incestuous relationship between like the different parts of Hollywood. You're talking like the studios, uh, that's TV studios or movie studios, agencies, publicists, the theater owners. It goes on and on. And when one of them gets paid, the other one gets paid. Mm -hmm. And they have like this sort of back and forth to where each one benefits each other. It's symbiotic. You You can be with someone else for a while but you still always want to keep the other person in mind and make sure that they're getting paid and feeling good as well. One executive compared it to me, like the dance scenes from Bridgerton on Netflix, which uh, <laughs> when these like young women and young men are out there dancing, they switch their partners various times during a dance. And that's kind of what it's like in Hollywood. You have to keep <laughs> switching up and make sure everyone is happy. And that these kind of disruptors who've come in, they don't understand that. And they're not good at making sure everyone is happy. And they think of it as this outdated system that just doesn't belong in the present anymore. And parts of it certainly are outdated. But the thing is that it works. And it has worked. And it's made people rich for a very long time. And the further I think that we get away from that, I think that's where you see these companies starting to run into trouble. There's like this really this magic of Hollywood, which is why it's kind of functioned how it has for a long time, that it just doesn't always work with tech. It's a very interesting point. I wonder if tech has finally met its match with challenging a traditional industry. Maybe they're just outmanned on this one, you know? Yeah. 
All right. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning in to the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor is Robert Hartwig and our executive producer is Darren Clark. If you liked what you heard today, go check out more at thehustle.co. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage for you. It's thehustle.co. Have a great weekend and we'll catch you all next week.